as we stand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we can gather together like this. We can hear your word, we can pray, we can sing. But as we have just sung, keep us from just singing. Let the response of our hearts and lives to you uh, be so much uh, deeper, longer lasting than simply singing when we gather together. May we recognize that uh, whatever our character, that challenge to go is not for particular kinds of people, but for all those who know the Spirit of God alive in their lives as they recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen. Do please sit and find Acts chapter 10, if you would. I think it was page 1103. And let me pay tribute and thanks uh, to those who've helped me uh, in this. It just so happens, uh, some of you will not, it will not be your first time of encountering Acts chapter 10 today. If you've been helping with the young people's work, you'll know that entirely coincidentally, uh, our young people were dealing with this passage this morning. Uh, I don't know what it is that you like to do if you get to be by a beach on holiday. I love living in East Anglia. I love the the wide open sands and the dog walking and all the rest of it. The only problem I have a small complaint uh, about is that it is so, so very well sandy. Uh, I, I confess to a slight preference for the beaches out in the west of the UK where there are rocks and where there are rocks, there's water, and that means I get to build dams. I can waste pretty much a whole of a day um, just looking after building a dam, watching it uh, be destroyed, building it again, destroying it myself just for fun, building it again, and the day can pass quite happily. So uh, because that's me, I paid attention this week when I heard the story on the BBC of the uh, demolition of two dams uh, in the west of the United States. Huge things, vast, square mile after square mile of dam. Uh, Two of them were being taken down because they no longer meet environmental safety uh, requirements. Uh, And because uh, some of the Native uh, American people living locally to those dams have uh, claims on the fish that couldn't really be exercised uh, while the dams were in place, and they've been there for 100 years. Now, imagine the fun of blowing up a dam. How cool is that? Imagine being the guy who gets to go boom. And there was footage of the sheer power of all this water, not in the kind of slow, controlled way that builds electricity. Um, you know, it's just kind of the whole lot was, was coming down. Uh, not, I have to say, all at once, because I'm, I'm sure several towns would have been washed away, but it was still pretty impressive. If you want to go and look at it, it look for the Elwha Dam, the E-L-W-H-A Dam, the power of it, the surge of that dam. And that image of surging power is an image I kind of invite you to hold in your head as we go through the story 
of Acts 10. Because I think that most of the times I've heard this story talked about, uh, you don't really get the sense of power coming through as it should. The story is quickly told. Um, The previous uh, moment, which we heard about last week, has seen Peter, the apostle, uh, in the town of Joppa. Go west from Jerusalem to the coast, pretty, pretty much exactly where Tel Aviv is these days, and that is the town of Joppa. And he's staying with a tanner named Simon. Now, meanwhile, north uh, of Joppa, uh, again, still on the coast, in the town of uh, Caesarea, uh, which was a, a garrison town, there is a centurion called Cornelius. And the story works pretty much like that. This, and I'm going to stay pretty much with the sections that you've got in your Bible there. Verses 1 through to 8, there's an angel comes and tells Cornelius to send to Peter in Joppa. And Cornelius sends down from Caesarea to Joppa help. Verse 9 through to 23... There is a vision that comes to Peter while he is praying um, in the town of Joppa, while he's staying with Simon, and it tells him that God is completely changing the old food laws that kept Jew and Gentile apart. And the Spirit leads him to the men who are visiting and and who are waiting at his gate. Then verses uh, 23 through to Uh, this is where there's a break probably, through to 33. There's now 10 of them. Uh, There are uh, six that Paul takes with him from Joppa. There are uh, two that have, uh, possibly two, possibly three, not sure, who've come from Caesarea and Paul himself, and they take more than a day to travel north all the way up the coast to Caesarea. They arrive, Cornelius is ready for them and says, now, preach. Cornelius was a good man. Then, uh, verse 34 to 48, Peter, uh, if he hadn't got it before, there's a slight sense that Peter now really gets what the vision was about, and he preaches Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his household. Now, I was kind to you uh, tonight and spared you the rest of the story, which is set out for us in chapter 11 and verses 1 through to 18. But that's the scope I want to have in front of us. And in in the the bit that we didn't have read, Peter is summoned uh, to account for himself as to why good things have happened to Gentiles, because good things didn't ought to happen to Gentiles. And he uh, explains to those who are in Jerusalem, uh, look, I just told the story. I saw the vision. I told the story. The Holy Spirit came. What do you want me to do? Um, And so so it ends with... Uh, When they heard this, verse 18 of chapter 11, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. That's the story. Five sections. Two of them coming in what you've got set out there as 33 through to 48. Now, the application of that story is really not too difficult. Apart from anything else, the sheer volume of text involved... You get half the story staying with Cornelius, half the story uh, with Peter, and it kind of moves together. Then something happens, and then Peter has to go and tell the story again in Jerusalem. The sheer volume of text involved in that one single story tells us this matters. 
And it's a hinge moment in the story of God's people. The dam has burst. God's grace has flowed out to the Gentiles. Put it together in its context, looking more widely, it's even more amazing. In chapter 9, we had the story of the conversion of Saul, who then becomes Paul. Chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. Chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius. The one is an upright Pharisee, a Jew who guards the gates of God's people, who uses violence to keep everything the way it should be. The other is the God-fearing but not Jewish Gentile, the Roman, who has used violence, no doubt, because he's a soldier all the time in his life. But he knows he can never be accepted into God's people. That's how the rules were, unless he seeks circumcision. And both of them, Saul in his way, Cornelius in his, both are simply overwhelmed by the reality of what God is up to in this gospel of his son Jesus, the good news. The gates of God's people are flung open and the barrier between Jew and Gentile comes down. That's the application. That's the story. That's what happens. What is this barrier between Jew and Gentile? Well, according to this story, the vision of the the sheet coming down with the animals in it, it is the food laws that kept the Jews apart. And if that's what the barrier is, then surely you don't have to have too many brain cells to want to know, well, why, why is it there in the first place? Really, what is it doing? You can ask why it matters that it comes down, but what was it there for in the first place? In what way was it really, really important that they weren't allowed to eat shrimp or pork and that they weren't allowed to boil a young goat in its mother's milk? The, 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 I, I think I've said this in a morning service, but it, it stays in my mind going to a museum uh, in, um, in Jerusalem. I think it was Yad Vashem. Uh, and, and just finding this, this literally a rope barrier between the dairy and the non-dairy. And just a, a completely 20th, 1st century um, uh, restaurant in every way, except dairy on that side, non-dairy on that, and a rope down the middle to make sure that you, had, you got your main meal, uh, or if you wanted it, you could have a dairy meal, uh, but you never crossed the barrier. So you, you, sold, you, you bought it there, then you went, went, and then you went and ate it in this section, then afterwards you crossed over and then you went and did something else. But you never, ever did the same thing together. It's still there, that barrier. And the important thing is to register that this story is not about a simple prejudice. We know the story, I guess, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well and the disdain of Jews for Gentiles. And we think of racisms or nationalisms that we know of in our own day. And we think it's the same, but it isn't the same. This barrier is not a natural human barrier. This barrier is God's own established barrier. And why is it? Why is it there? Well, let's ask Balaam. Would you please turn to Numbers chapter 23? That's on page, well, verse 9, which is what I want to look at, is on verse page uh, 162. 
uh, Balak is a king who is really frustrated at the ways in which he can see the people of God multiplying in territory very close to his own. And he summons a, uh, a local prophet uh, called Balaam to curse that people. And much to his frustration, uh, Balaam, who wasn't particularly godly, um, uh, opens his mouth to curse and out comes a blessing. And in the course of this blessing, uh, verse 9, from the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them, I see people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. And that is the point, ladies and gentlemen. That's the very essence of the difference, the uniqueness. This is a people belonging to God who live apart and don't consider themselves one of the nations. Sometimes we, we, we read the um, old rules of food stuff and think about pork and trimming, oh yeah, hot climate, dodgy, and think it's about health. It's not. Refrigeration had not arrived in Jesus' day. So just after Jesus opens the gates to the Gentiles and breaks down the food laws, it's not because pork has suddenly become okay. They didn't suddenly get fridges. It's not about health issues, but simply to mark out the people as different. Because of the laws, they had to keep the boundaries high and the gates defended against mixing with the other people's. God did not want them to mix in case the purity of his worship was was mixed and corrupted and fouled. And that's why God gave them the laws in food and ceremonies, just to keep them pure and unmixed with the boundaries high, a single shining witness to God's purposes, living in such a way as to welcome all other peoples in. That was the bit they didn't do. Indeed, the ceremonial laws had overtaken the moral laws. And in the story that we find in front of us, the centurion who is praised, we discover, has more moral virtue going on in his life than the Jewish teachers whom Jesus condemns for their greed and oppression. The centurion is a much better man than Saul was in the story one chapter before. So the right application of this story is pretty much what it says on the tin. The barriers between Jew and Gentile have come down. A version of that is going to be the right thing to come away with. But the problem is that sounds so dull. The barrier has been down for nigh on 2,000 years. So we've had a little time to get used to the idea. It is not new. And so, because it's not new, the danger is that we take this story And we start to flap around, trying to apply it to pretty much any situation we can think of in which there's a gap between peoples, a gap that needs to be thought about, either to be left in place or to be closed up. I was at a meeting this week in which some terribly well-respected Christian was explaining how he believed in Jesus, but Jesus was simply for him the way up the mountain of God. Others in other faiths and by other ways, they all had their own route up the mountain. And it's all valid, isn't it? Because God includes everybody. I wasn't talking about this story, 
But I suspect that if we'd pushed him, he'd have looked to this kind of story to justify that point of view. All the barriers are down, all the faiths are now okay. That is not the point of this story. That is not the application for this story. What Peter says in verse 34, chapter 10, and we're back now on page 1104, what Peter says is, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. God accepts those who fear him and do what is right. And what is right, Peter? I'm glad you asked me, Cornelius, and now here let me tell you the story of Jesus. Which he then goes straight into. God accepts those who fear him and do what is right, and here's the story of Jesus. The point of the sheet and the animals is that to be acceptable to God, Cornelius didn't have to become a Jew. It's not the point that he was okay without becoming a follower of Jesus. The story indeed presses home the point that we must become followers of Jesus. We cannot say that you choose your own route up the mountain. But then also there are other uh, things that people do or can do with this story. Some would make an even broader claim. The barriers are down and God accepts all people without discrimination because Jesus' death is so powerful that everyone is forgiven whether they know it or not. It's, it, but if it's not necessary to know the forgiveness of God in Christ, then there's no point in the water baptism that follows in verse 48. What Peter calls later on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. If it were true that everyone is forgiven without whether they, know it, whether they know it or not. Then the apostles in Jerusalem at the end of the, of, of the story, 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 18, they'd be guilty of the most appalling error when they interpret the whole event as God has granted even the Gentiles, what? Repentance unto life. They don't need to repent under that approach. But if the apostles are right and they do need to repent, then we do need to know the forgiveness of God. And then finally, something more specific in this particular week of news. One more specific claim that we must insist is not the right way to interpret the story. The Church of England on Tuesday made its submission to the government's consultation on the introduction of legislation to allow same-sex marriage. All kinds of voices uh, were heard in response this week, pro and anti I was talking with our own bishop on Thursday and he'd been traipsing around the media studios for a couple of days in interviews and dialogues and discussions and he reflected like this. The trouble is, whatever good arguments we put forward, the argument coming back the other way is the argument from equality and it is used in the expectation that it trumps every other argument that we might use. Well, I wonder if you could have a biblical passage more suited to the purpose of demonstrating equality. And yet that's still not what it's for. To repeat what I said already, the barriers involved here are not moral barriers 
or barriers of prejudice, but the barriers of the ceremonial Jewish law. We can't simply map those barriers onto other barriers we may know about and say, this must be that. They're all barriers. They all must be down. No. There's no reason to do that. Let's stick with the one true application we know of. The barriers between Jew and Gentile have come down. But then let's face the fact that it does lead us with a problem. Perhaps that's interesting historically, but how on earth should it make a difference? On earth, here and now, today, tomorrow. To you, to me. To you, to me, so never mind. Well, I think we can get a clue from one interpretation that's nearly right and that does the rounds on this story. The bit that's right about it runs like this. The barriers are down. The Gentiles now have access to God. God is available even to them. Well, let's uh, respond by beginning at the cross of Jesus. Perhaps you'll remember that at the death of Jesus upon the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Uh, Not from bottom to top, as we might be able to tear a curtain, even a thick curtain, even a curtain many metres high, as this was, but rather from top to bottom, as you and I could not tear it. Why did that happen? Well, I I don't know what you've heard, but I reckon the the, the explanation I've heard most is so that the Gentiles can come in, into the most holy place, even where God is. Now, the Bible doesn't add that bit. It doesn't say that that's why. Yes, it's true that the only person allowed into the presence of God in the most holy place is the high priest once a year. And so, yes, the open curtain might mean that others can come in. But it's at least as reasonable to suppose that what it's symbolizing is that God can come out. It's only a symbol, of course, because God can do whatever he wants and go wherever he wants. But if it means that if if the heart of that uh, symbol means only that the Gentiles can go in, then that sort of leaves the burden on the Gentiles to want to go in. And if we take this story in front of us tonight and start to say, well, the great thing is that now the Gentiles can come in to the people of God. That the Gentiles find that God is accessible to them. If that's all that we say, then we can easily slide into leaving the building this evening and saying, isn't it great that the gospel is available to the person we pass on the street on our way from here? And the person we meet in the office tomorrow and the person we share time with in our family. That is... Isn't it great that God has opened the door to the Gentiles so that they can exercise their responsibility to come in? We can take that nearly right interpretation and be glad that the Gentiles we know have really got something that they need to do. And forget in the process the whole point. The point is not that all may now come in to Jesus, but that we speak to others 
to tell them that they must come to Jesus. Not that all may come to Jesus, but we must tell all about Jesus. Not that they may come in, but that we must go out. They may lets us off the hook. It means that you can leave the building tonight knowing that, well, it's great to know that God has done this, and the people that you'll meet this week, they've got a responsibility, and they really jolly well should exercise it. And if they exercise it, great, you'll be back here rejoicing by next Sunday. If it means only they may. But if it means we must, then it leaves us with work to do, looking to the spirit and the power of God, because we know we cannot do the work. Whenever we hit a we must, there will be some who say, well, that, that's great, okay, you're a preacher and I'm hearing you say that uh, as a preacher, but of course I couldn't do that because it's not my character. You know, I'm, I'm fairly shy by nature. You don't stand in front of a dam breaking and say, well, um, the fr- person beside me who's more outgoing, it's okay for them to have a different response from me. You both better be doing the same thing in front of that power. The story that occupies one and a half chapters here makes no sense. And we will get it wrong if we neglect the power of what Peter actually says to Cornelius in verses 34 to 43. God spoke to Israel, telling of Jesus who is Lord of all. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, and the seven of us, because he's with six of his mates, and the seven of us saw him. He was killed by hanging on a tree, but God raised him. And we who witnessed him risen were told to testify that he is God's judge of all peoples. Everyone who believes in him is forgiven. Now, there's a whole sermon to preach just about Peter's sermon. It's not for now. But just to, to, to quickly say. You could go home if you wanted and look at it again and say, just notice the good news here. It's a focus on Jesus. He does not spend a long time trying to force other people to pretend to a sense of sin that they haven't got. He just assumes that they know that there will be an accounting. He's appointed him to be the judge. We go into a world tomorrow where no one believes in sin. You don't, where no one, that, that stuff doesn't make sense. But people do still believe in accountability. How much is Leveson costing us at the moment? What's the bill? It's several millions already. Because we do believe in accountability. We believe in accountability. And that's all that's being claimed in this story. Jesus will hold each person accountable. Every one. That's not a difficult message to say in our day. This story, he says of Jesus is for testifying to all. So the story must be told. The dam has burst and God is scattering us out to tell the gospel. I told you earlier on, this story and the scope of the story stops at verse 18 of chapter 11, but look at verse 19 for two seconds. So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, previous story, travelled a long way away.
God has come out of the temple. He is at work to take bad news, persecution, and make it good news. He's scattering the believers. He's pushing them out. This is part of a mighty movement. The dam has burst. Yes, it's true that we must not be prejudiced. But that's such a thin interpretation, if, this is, if that's all there is to this story. You and I continue to stand at the foot of the dam still, as the power of God continues that mighty movement out of the place that is his alone. And the power of God pours itself into life after life. Look at how often power and spirit are mentioned here. We, we would be mad. It's just impossible to imagine as that force of water is coming down to stand at the foot of a bursting dam and, and say, oh, look, uh, look at this boat at, at the bottom. Isn't it marvellous how it can climb the, the water to the top? Because that's not going to happen. It's not about who can go in. It's about the force and the power coming out. So instead we say, look at the force of the dam that is pushing that boat so far, so fast downstream. And that's you and me. The message of the story, deeply and widely embedded as it is in the book of the Acts, is this. Not that they may come in, but that we must go out. This is not about whether we feel like it, whether we've got the right temperament, whether we think it's natural to us, whether we feel we're made that way. It simply tells us what is to be done because God has burst the dam and sent us out as his agents in the world to tell a story of judgment and peace with God. Let's pray. Lord, we are, I guess... 99% of us anyway uh, here tonight will be Gentiles. Maybe there's one or two from Jewish background. But we are mostly Gentiles. We are the Corneliuses. Forgive us that we read your word and think it so thin and pale and timid a thing. Take from us the excuses that explain why 98% of us needn't actually do what uh, the Holy Spirit, by his power, is sending Peter to do in this, telling the story of Jesus. We've already confessed our failures to do that before you. And we ask the specific encouragement that in the days ahead we might take, perhaps seize opportunities, whether they seem entirely obvious or not, but seize opportunities and be encouraged to know that whatever the responses may be, we are part of that continuing power of your Spirit, spreading out into the world, telling the story, not just singing, 
but going. Because in Jesus Christ, that's the God you've revealed yourself to be, a God who goes, who cannot but go, who must go, out of love for those you've made. Amen.